0: on the 28th of May. So get in and get your tickets. Now they are going very fast. Please go to guiltyfeminist.com and just click on live shows for any of these events.
1: I'm a feminist, but I'm deeply invested in Sophie Monk finding love on The Bachelor. I really do believe that she's on this journey for the right reasons. And I am counting the days till the final rose ceremony. And Jared's a creep and needs to leave.
0: I get the picture. I'm a feminist, but last week I was in New York and I went to see Hamilton, the hip hop musical about the founding fathers, the story of America then told by America Now. A musical I prefer to sex. It's like my favorite show of all time. And just before the curtain went up, my male friend, who was sitting next to me, said, oh yeah, my friend is a feminist and she has a real problem with this musical. And I looked at him and said, do not ruin this for me with gender. <laughs> Seriously, that it was not the time.
1: Still, it's awfully highbrow. You get to come on and
0: say you've just seen Hamilton. I'm all,
1: I was watching The Bachelorette.
0: Listen, I have watched more Say Yes to the Dress than you've watched, I've probably seen Dirty Dancing more times than you've watched discrete episodes of The Bachelor. I'm a feminist, but When electricity
1: or phone companies call and badger me about changing to a lower budget plan and they just won't stop talking and I need them to shut up and I don't want to engage even though it probably would save me more than $82 a month by getting rid of all those extra fees and charges, I tell them that my husband isn't home and he's in charge of the finances. And
0: it always works. Listen, it's a strategy. <laughs> Whatever gets you through the day. I'm a feminist, but after I saw Hamilton last week, I said to my male friend, OK, tell me why, what your friend's problems are and, and what's wrong with it. And he said, well, she feels that the casting was race-blind and it could have been gender-blind. For example, King George III could have been played by a woman. And I said, wouldn't that be distracting? And he said, well, were you distracted by the fact that George Washington was played by a bald black man? And I said, shut the fuck up. <laughs> Sorry, we're not meant to say that word because of children. Sorry, again. I wrote that before I was told there were children in. That's the last time that'll happen. Don't make promises, Probably. you can't get- <laughs> Probably. I said it quickly. I don't think they heard. I don't think anyone noticed. I think I got away with them.
1: I'm a feminist, but I really like shopping at Country Road, even though I don't actually like their clothes very much, because they use the same sizing as the United States, and I enjoy asking sales assistants for a size that's two sizes thinner than I actually am.
0: I need to just ask, has Jeffrey Robertson left the building, or is he in? He's left, hasn't he?
2: Yeah.
1: Oh, he'd be talking if he was here.
0: <laughs> okay, so if you're listening to this podcast and you don't know who Jeffrey Robertson is, I had a mad crush on him when I was a kid, because he did this television show called Hypothetical, He's like an entertaining lawyer who would trick politicians into saying things they didn't want to say on television. I'm a feminist, but when I met Jeffrey Robertson last night at the speaker's drinks, he really did not seem very interested in me. And I wanted to get a photo with him because I'm still a little bit in love with him and also I wanted to impress my mother. So eventually I sidled up and I said, Jeffrey is to love watching you when I was a kid on television. And I really think you're the reason that I became a stand-up comedian. (laughs) And he went, oh, usually people say, you're the reason I became a lawyer. (laughs) And I would say, oh, sorry about that. Um, So I love hearing, I love hearing that someone became a stand-up comedian because of me. I love hearing that, I love hearing that. And it was at that moment I realised that the best way to influence an influential man is to start a sentence with, you're the reason. And so I'm gonna use that again. I'm gonna use that again. That is pocketed now. Anytime I need to get in the room with an influential man, I'm just gonna hurl myself across anything, a barricade, a red rope, and say, you're the reason. They will be listening to the end of that sentence. That is guaranteed sterling advice. Everybody should use that.
1: I'm a feminist, but
0: there was more than one occasion
1: when watching The Handmaid's Tale that I thought to myself, red is absolutely Samira Wiley's colour. She looks fucking fabulous.
0: (laughs) Oh no, I said that. Sorry, children. Sorry. to of questions what the hell the handmaid's tale in 2017 in association with the guilty feminist podcast <laughs> now some of you are watching this live in the room some of you are going to be watching this later hello welcome uh, some of you are going to be listening to this, this is a guilty feminist podcast uh, welcome, welcome all. Um, so right now I am going to bring on my guest co-host. Um, you will probably know her because you're Australian. Um, she is a fantastic broadcaster, writer, you may have seen her on the telly. Uh, please put your hands together and make extraordinary woohooing noises for Jamila Rivsne Okay, so, um, I'm Deborah Francis-White, this is Jamila Brivsney. Today, we're going for it. We're going full handmaid. Jamila, how have you found this topic? How have you found the handmaid's tale? Harrowing?
1: Uh, Yes, very much deeply harrowing, but also uh, nerve-wracking, because I have to be honest, unlike most of the audience, forgive me for I have sinned, I had not heard an episode of the Guilty Feminist podcast until about three days ago. But
0: Ooh, some, some people don't like that Jamila. No, I don't no. think you should have confessed that here. But
1: I am 13 episodes in in three days. <laughs> Stop it right and now. And I may as well be sitting next to Beyonce. So I'm just trying to keep calm and pretend I've had a of blocker. That
0: is, that is not true. But don't start confessing things like that. They'll make a circle of handmaids around you and start pointing <laughs> and accusing. Did We've all seen bring, that episode. Did anyone bring a stone? <laughs> um, now, I need to say this this is official. I'm going to say it into the camera. The Wheeler Centre's Festival of Questions is presented in partnership with the City of Melbourne and Melbourne Festival as event partners, and also our patrons, Tony and Maureen Wheeler, Chairman Eric Beecher and TWC board members, TWC donors, and supporters. I would also like to acknowledge that we are gathered on the traditional lands of the Kulin Nation and pay my respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. So, we need to just do a little rundown of The Handmaid's Tale. Uh, So The Handmaid's Tale is a novel written in 1985 by Margaret Atwood, Uh, it's a core feminist text and it's basically a story about uh, a United States of America where the Constitution is suspended uh, due to basically they're blaming the threat of Islamic terrorism but really it's not that at all, it's like a Tea Party style religious right Christian group. Uh, who decide that America's family values have fallen away and they need to take over. How Margaret Atwood foresaw this in 1985 is not clear. Um, it's pretty scarily accurate to what's happening right now. Margaret
1: Atwood and who's the guy that writes The Simpsons, who's, who wrote Matt Donald Roman. Trump going down the escalator and then becoming the president, if, Like, they, to, there should be some questions asked of those
0: two. Wow. Do you think we just need to get Matt Groening and Margaret Atwood in a room and <laughs> ask them what's going to happen in the next 20 years? And then we can prepare. I want to see the Handmaid's Tale episode of The Simpsons. Yeah. <laughs> and
1: then you ask them, how many tins do I buy for the shelter?
0: Oh, yeah. Good call, good call. Um, The premise is there are fertility issues, and so the government are using scriptural precedent. And if anybody knows the Old Testament, there is a scriptural precedent that if a wife couldn't get pregnant, uh, she could ask her handmaid uh, to basically... Help. Outsource. Yeah. By Uh, being a slave. Yeah, by being a slave. And uh, what they do in the story uh, is that they enslave women Uh, to have their babies with a really, really awful ritual that they call the ceremony where the wife is present um, and the handmaid lies between the wife's legs. It's awful basically, it's really horrible and there are lots of other elements to it uh, but basically there's a really terrible class system, Uh, it's a fascist regime and people are trying to escape to Canada. Um, So apart from the fertility issues, there are extraordinary parallels to the contemporary day. Um, so shall we crack on and start, because we want to bring on our amazing panel. Oh, <clears throat> please welcome to the stage, Deborah
1: Frances wyfe
0: So when I worry, as I do, about The Handmaid's Tale coming true, The main thing I worry about, it's not what you'd think. I don't worry about how I'd live as a handmaid. My main major fear is that they're gonna look at me and go, yeah, you're an aunt. (laughs) (laughs) Genuinely, because I know I'm on the cusp. And then I think, well, maybe I'd rather be like a young, hot, sexy aunt than a washed up handmaid. And I go back and forth about it, because I know I understand I'm cusping. And I understand I do understand that the hot ticket job is the commander's wife, but I just genuinely fear it more than anything because it looks so boring. All you get to do is water roses and hope somebody else gets pregnant. There's nothing active in it at all. Like you can't even be part of the sort of the May Day underground resistance. There's absolutely nothing going on. Honestly, I would rather work at Jezebel's, the brothel, because it looks like there's a shit tonne of MDMA going on there. <laughs> and there's something in that. And, I mean obviously I'm hoping it doesn't happen at all. I'm hoping to stave it off. And I, and I, I realise as I say that, that's coming from a place of white privilege. I understand that indigenous women in this country were basically used as handmaids. Their children were taken away. So when I say, oh, I fear this coming, I do understand I'm talking from a place of white middle-class privilege. I understand that women all around the world are enslaved. I understand that the life of a person of color is very different from my own life. I understand. I really do understand that. And in that context, even, in the last three or four years, the world has changed so dramatically. Do you remember when we were all angry because we thought it was a fascist act to find a free U2 album on our phones? (laughs) Do you know that was three years ago this month? That was three years ago this month. Obama was in the White House, Brexit was a twinkle in Boris Johnson's eye. There was no horrendous plebiscite about equal marriage in this country. It was, it was a different, it was three years ago, guys. That was three years ago. Things are changing at a great rate, and some kind of resistance is needed. And I keep thinking, when I watch The Handmaid's Tale, what kind of resistance can we make, what can we do? And I honestly think that the patriarchy loves the binary so much Because if we won't form ourselves into two orderly camps, how will they know who to oppress? That's why I think that gender fluidity and the non-binary and gender expression is the worst enemy the patriarchy has. It's what it fears the most. It absolutely is terrified. And this is why transgender people seem to inflame and anger the patriarchy so much. And actually, transgender people even seem to inflame fear in some groups of feminists. And I honestly think that's what it is. It's like, well, if we don't, if people won't stay in their camp, how do we know which ones are which? And that's a really interesting thing. Like, why is that so frightening? And I honestly think that the reason transgender people seems scary to large parts of our population is that they are living their best whole selves despite what it costs them. Knowing that that it will cause structural and even at times physical violence, they're still living their full selves. And most of us aren't. Most of us are living at half-mast that's the truth most of us are somewhat in the closet about who we are you don't have to be queer to be in the closet but if you're transgender and you're out you've sort of got no choice but to be all the way out that's all you can do even if you passed a cis, at some point in your transition you didn't so so you really have no choice but that's what pride is for all queer people pride is basically Listen, there are some parts about me that I can't conform to your standards no matter what I do. There are some things, essential things about me that you just hate. There's part of this that you just hate, so I might as well put some sequins on it. Turn up the Kylie and dance in the street. Because there is no opportunity for conformity. In fact, the more for conformity is an option to you, or an option for you, the more tempting it is to conform. The more about you that is essential to you, the things that you can't change, the more it is essentially approved of. So if you're a white, straight, cis, middle-class man, everything that you can't change and you did nothing to earn is essentially approved of. So you only have to conform a little bit further to get a really big prize. And in fact, you have to fuck up quite a lot as a white, straight, cis man, to be disapproved of, you have to go the full wine sting. <laughs> And even then, let's be clear, he's just a scapegoat. They throw one to the fire every ten years so it looks like they care. That's the truth. Oh, we should throw him out of the academy. But not all those other sex offenders then. No, we're just doing one so it looks like we care. <laughs> You know he'll come back. He'll come back from his sex addiction spa in Switzerland, make a movie called Oops, and he'll be accepted back again. If you are a white, straight, cis man, and the system's working for you, there's a reason to conform. But a lot of us are conforming just because we feel conforming is something that we have to do. But you have to ask yourself, if the fascist regime comes in, Ask yourself, the person that you are, the things that you cannot change yourself, the things that you cannot conform to, those being present, how likely are you to be sent to the colonies or put in a red dress with a white hood? Because if you, just essentially because you are who you are, are going to be put into a red dress with a white hood, then the prize for conforming now is only further conforming then. There's no prize for us to conform. There's no reward, there's a reward for a white straight man. But, if you are a white straight man and you think, but I don't want to conform to this, this is all awful, then you can rejoin the resistance, you don't have to join in. You really can join the resistance. What I think we need now is more gender traitors. That's what I think. I say, beware of anybody who tells you who the enemy is. Beware of anybody who marshals you into two distinct groups and puts one group in charge of another. Male and female, white and black, straight and gay, cis and trans, green dresses and red dresses. It's why they split you up and put one group in charge of the other. It's so that we can police each other. What we need now is to confuse them by not conforming when we still have a chance. We need more men who are happy to cry in public. We need more women who are happy to be loud on the street. We need more men who are going to knit on buses. More women who will wear a three-piece suit and smoke a pipe. Any way that you don't genuinely feel that you are living your whole truth, any way that you think you're conforming just to please them, chuck it out. Try something new. Just don't conform in a way that you, where you think, I don't know, I've never tried this before, but it might be fun. And one more thing, let's all put sequins on. Turn the Kylie up, dance in the street, do not form two orderly cues, and they won't know who to oppress. And don't let the bastards grind you down. Please welcome to the stage, Jamila Ribsby. Uh,
1: so I really just wanted to um, so being welcome to the stage is rather lovely. When I was watching the Handmaid's Tales series, and I did go back and reread the book immediately before because I loved the book when I was at school and I often hate adaptations, but for the most part, minus a couple of little things, I did love this adaptation. And the scene that stuck with me the most, and for those of you who haven't seen the series, there are some truly horrific scenes. Like, we're talking about scenes where women are raped again and again and again. There is a scene where the women turn on one another and they stone one of the women to death, spoilers. And um, yet the scene that stuck with me the most and the scene that I think hurt me the most was utterly ordinary and it's in one of the flashbacks to time before, a time before this horrible world was enforced on the United States and our not yet offered, the main character, has just come home from work and she's realised that her credit cards have been frozen. So uh, what what she's realised is that she can't access her bank account, that what uh, the government has done is they've gone into the banks and any account that was marked F for female, they have just stopped. And she couldn't access her money anymore. And she was dismissed from her job, and she was sent home with zero economic freedom. And what happened with her bank account was her bank account was transferred to her male partner. And she's in, I think she's in the kitchen with her best friend Moira and her I remember, if they're married, the, the partner Luke, and they have this lovely relationship, and it's a mixed race relationship, not yet offered and Luke, and it reminded me so much of my husband and I. They're so loving, and they're going on. They've had this daughter, and everything about them reminded me of my husband and myself and our little kid. And she's distraught, you know, and she's moving between, she's oscillating between deep anger and just sobbing and just losing her shit and wanting to cry like a little kid. Um, which is exactly how I imagine I would be in such a situation. And Luke, her partner, says to her, don't worry, I'll take care of you. And, like, I was sitting on the couch with my husband and I just did this sharp intake of breath and went, "Oh," oh." and I just thought, that's what he'd say. This man that loves me and would have thought that that would be the most reassuring thing to hear in that moment. I'll take care of you. And it's the least reassuring thing. Because suddenly, I'm not a woman making a choice to be with this man. I'm a woman who does not any longer have the choice to leave this man. Because I'm completely dependent. And no matter how in love, no matter how in lust, no matter how wonderful our relationship, I don't get to leave anymore. I have to stay. And it just, it it broke me. And it, it took me back to that famous quote from the book. I think we're going to do a lot of quoting the book tonight which is, ordinary is what you're used to. This may not seem ordinary to you now, but after a time it will. It will become ordinary. And I started to think about, well, what's ordinary for me? And um, forgive me international listeners on the podcast, but certainly in the Western developed world, it's a pretty similar picture to the one I'm gonna paint. So here in Australia, first year, out of university and into the paid workforce. This is university-educated young people. First year out of university and into the paid workforce, women earn 10% on average less than men. 10%. That's today, 2017, October. And as they go through, that gap widens and widens and widens. I want the audience to put up your hand. Put up your hand if you are aged 31 or older.
0: Could you just say mmm at the same time because it's a podcast?
1: Thank you. Okay, now, say mm for me if you're younger than 31. Okay, so most of the room are 31 or older. I'm 31 years old. On average, your pay has peaked. In this country, the average Australian woman reaches her peak salary, her peak earnings, at age 31. For men, it's about a decade later, and obviously at a lot higher rate. And I don't think it's any coincidence that the average Australian woman has her first baby at age 30. I don't think that's any coincidence. So that gap starts at the beginning and then it stays with us. It moves with us through time, to the point that Australian women retire with half the superannuation of men, half. And we live 10 years longer, so it's got to last us a whole lot more. The single fastest group of people living in poverty in this country are single women aged over 65, 40% of whom live below the poverty line. 40% for Indigenous women, you are three times as likely to be unemployed as an Anglo woman. 80% of Asian Australian women say they've been discriminated against at work. The unemployment rate for women with a disability has remained stagnant for the last 25 years, while for men it's improved significantly. Women earn less, we are heard less, and we are hurt more. And that's just real life. Which brings me back to ordinary is what you're used to. This may not seem ordinary to you now, but after a time it will, it will become ordinary.
0: It's time to bring on our panel, so please join me in welcoming Lauren Ducker, Chrissy Neen, Celeste Little, and Quinn Eads. Lauren, blessed be the fruit.
3: Praise be. Uh,
0: could, you, uh, could you just uh, give us a little introduction?
3: Oh, hi. I'm Lauren Duca, Deborah. I'm so sorry you Rose. told me that.
0: <laughs> Lauren's very fa- Is Lauren famous here. Lauren's very famous in the UK. Woo! And I, uh, because she wrote a very seminal piece on Trump during the run up to the election, which successfully uh, killed his campaign, um, <laughs> it's so famous it should have. Uh, and I have been following you ever since, Lauren. But I've not heard
3: your name because I will see it in print. It's okay. And I, Lauren Duka, I've
0: got to, <laughs> I've got to read it.
3: So could you just tell us a little bit about yourself? I was, yeah, um, I am a politics columnist for Teen Vogue and um, enemy of Fox News. <laughs> <laughs> Christine, on eye.
0: resign. Uh, yes. I can't remember what the thing is I'm supposed to say, I'm, but I'm, I'm, I'm whatever just, it is, you, I'm just you, said you should it. say any of them. Under his eye, <laughs> uh, you can say uh, by, under his eye back. <laughs> she would not survive.
4: <laughs> well, I'm She's dead. the only one in I'm red. Dead. That's and right. And she would not survive. <laughs> I'm dressed like a handmaid,
0: but I'm dead.
4: <laughs> and that's because my ovaries no longer produce babies. <laughs>
0: well, that's a lot of personal information. <laughs> <It is>. So <laughs> early on, I Hello. love you already. <laughs>
4: Hi, Um, I am going to introduce myself, so I am an author, uh, a novelist generally, but I have written a memoir and a collection of poetry, and um, I think I'm most known for my exploration of sexuality, and um, queer sexuality, and uh, women's sexuality, Mm -hmm. and sometimes gender play as well. Gender traitor. I am a gender traitor. You're a gender, gender traitor.
0: And <laughs> um, proud of it. Woo. That's from. Just to be clear, if you don't know the Handmaid's Tale, or you don't know it well. That's what the Gilead regime calls uh, queer people, gender traitors. That's not me saying that. I just had a sudden thought that some people might go, God, that's not what we're expecting from a feminist podcast. <laughs> <laughs>
5: Celeste Little. I'm Celeste Little. I'm an Arunda woman. Um, I'm a freelance social commentator and writer. I'm a unionist. I'm a little bit of an anarchist. Um, <laughs> that's pretty much me in a nutshell. That's a, that's a,
0: that's a terrific nutshell, Celeste. Quinn.
2: My name's Quinn Eads. Um, you probably wouldn't know this, Deborah, but I'm super famous in Australia. No,
0: like I, did, all... I didn't know that. So I'm
2: a poet, and poets do really well in this country. <laughs> um, I, you probably saw me outside there with Geoffrey Robertson. I could not move for the line. The people that wanted me to sign my books, it was <laughs> astonishing. Never experienced anything quite like it. So. I, I just rushed here now actually after signing. Yeah, I, no, I think the, maybe 100. I know that Australia has lots of poets. I've already mentioned, can't even know. Yeah, no, <laughs> but we love our poets here. That all rhymes. <laughs> so I'm also a writer and a researcher, and my field is the body and trans, and queer, and feminist theories of the body.
0: Amazing. Um, The panel would very much threaten the powers that be at Gilead. Jamila, you mentioned that quote before that ordinary is what you're used to. I did, and that that straightaway led me to the fact that I have a question for Lauren.
1: Good. Lauren. Slam it over. As our token American,
3: (laughs) ordinary is what
1: you're used to. Are you used to it yet?
3: Uh, No, it really is incredible, the things that we are just processing and the metabolism that we have to have for atrocities against women, um, against all marginalized people on a daily basis, it really has been right out the gate every single day. There is kind of a new attack. And um, within the past few weeks, there was uh, a 20-week abortion ban passed in the House Uh, which is astounding, right? Like, uh, less than 1% of all abortions occur after 20 weeks. They're due to severe fetal abnormalities. Less than a week later, the Trump administration rolled back a birth control mandate that puts the birth control at risk for over 62 million women. Um, And it also opens up, it's based on a religious ruling, so it is theocratic authoritarianism, Uh, based on a religious ruling that uh, opens a door for LGBTQ discrimination um, allows employers to essentially enact religious rights in the workplace and It is so astoundingly close to home and I think it's been kind of an amazing rallying cry where uh, You know sometimes I think people like apply Harry Potter to everything that's going on It's like a little much like it's like this is our Snape. This is our Baltimore. It's like please read another book. But uh, with the Handmaid's Tale, it's been really helpful because it's truly an effective paradigm for understanding the fact that it is impossible for women to be free without reproductive rights, and the slippery slope—the <laughs> slippery slope that comes between small compromises—and I, I think that there truly is no room to compromise. Um, And what we see is even among progressives, you know, we have Bernie Sanders who is this paragon of economic justice who is willing to make concessions for candidates who are not fully pro-choice. And the idea that reproductive rights are not caught up in economic justice, the idea that you could possibly not understand that having a baby costs money, is just really absurd and I think it's allowed women to rally around what are our rights, what does it mean for us to be slaves to our bodies, slaves to reproduction, and it's truly only kind of one deviation away um, from the, not only the blowhard authoritarian that we have in power but Mike Pence who is a fundamentalist Christian who doesn't believe that he can dine alone with women. So I guess I will will end, I have so many things to say, but I guess I will end on two notes, which is one, if you don't believe that you can be alone with a woman without it being a safety risk, you are the problem and you need to stay home. (laughs) And two, if if Mike Pence and his his little evangelical buddies do get the Handmaid's Tale thing to work in America, I I just want everyone to know I am prepared to bite some dicks off.
0: Celeste, what did you think of the colourblind casting? Because in the book, people of colour are called Sons of Ham and they're sent to the colonies and this is an entirely white world. How did you feel about the decision of, for the Hulu drama to just go colourblind?
5: I thought it was erasive. It didn't actually work for me. Um, it, was, it, it was completely out of place, I felt... And let me just preface what I'm gonna say next with, I actually enjoyed the show and I enjoyed watching it. I thought this adaptation was a really, really good adaptation. But when they made the decision to colorblind cast, what they actually did was assimilate a bunch of colored people into this narrative. And I did actually mark the part in the book where it says about the um, the children of Ham. So do you want me to? Yeah, <laughs> that okay? go for it. Yeah. Now we can see a city again from the air. This used to be Detroit. Under the voice of the announcer, there's a thunk of artillery. From the skyline, columns of smoke ascend. Resettlement of the children of Ham is continuing on schedule, says the reassuring pink face back on the screen. 3,000 have arrived this week in National Homeland One, with another 2,000 in transit. How are they transporting so many people at once? Yeah. (laughs) So that was essentially, they were shipping off, and and Atwood made it really, really clear in the book. They were shipping off. In this fascist puritanical regime, which um, Gillade was, there was no place for people of colour. So when you just go and include them, but you don't include any of the dialogues about race and how that plays out, you're actually just assimilating a bunch of people of colour into a dominant white narrative. And the fact that they did that with the colour blind casting but didn't actually ever explore the issue of race in a regime that has um, sexism and homophobia turned up to 11 on the dial, all of
0: a sudden we're supposed to believe race is an issue. It just doesn't work. Well, what they said was they wanted to include actors of colour. They didn't want another show where it was all. there was another excuse for why uh, people of colour couldn't be in it and they said that they felt that they wouldn't be making a show about racism but they'd be making a racist show to exclude. So how could they have included people of colour and also given the stolen generation y- it's important it's to- Generations and- Generations yeah. It's important to include people of colour in that story. How could they have done it? There was one point where I felt
5: that having the inclusion of people of colour um, within the dialogue actually worked and Unfortunately, that was in the scenes of Jezebel, and the reason why I state that is because the historical narratives, the sort of precedents we have, again, I mean, when it comes to fascist, puritanical sort of the reinforcing of gendered roles and Christian beliefs and all of that, when that's played out, the sexual exploitation of women of colour has always happened. So you know despite the fact that it made my skin crawl that was where it fitted every other point where they've just erased the issue of racial discrimination in that sort of regime just didn't work
1: there was a point where it really um i, I think you make some some really good points there Celeste, because it really hit home for me in that scene where um moira who is the best friend and luke who is also a man of color who's offered its husband are running from the regime and there's this, I think there's a comment that says, oh, she'll be safe, Moira will be safe because she's with Luke. And I felt like saying, well, no, I mean, in any other world, being with a black man is probably going to make you the target,
0: yeah.
1: <laughs> you know, and it just didn't work in that sense. The narrative didn't work.
0: I was adopted in Australia um, and my birth mother, who I only found a few years ago, she never got to hold me, she never got to see me, but she and I both have white privilege. so. It, was, it, I mean, it wasn't bad for me at all because I was given to a nice family and they're my family. You know, I, don't, I don't know any different. And for her, obviously, having white privilege, her situation was very different. But both white women and indigenous women had their babies co- coercively taken away through that period in Australia. So is there a way to tell this story where both women of colour and white women are being handmaids, is sort of what I'm asking.
5: Not really, no. I I think that what we've got to also look at within The Handmaid's Tale is the very specific political um, environment that it's happening with and the sorts of things that they're reinforcing through the rule of God, the rule of, you know, the rule of men, the rule of everything else. There has not been a single fascist regime that doesn't also look at racial purity and just including women of colour within that dialogue. Are we supposed to all of a sudden believe that this regime wouldn't be highly racist when it's highly sexist and highly homophobic at the same
0: time? I think the argument is if a woman is fertile, that's over everything because there's so few fertile women. It's, but you're not yeah, buying it. No, no, because.
5: There is a strata of privilege. So the fertility of a woman that is white within, that's why Atwood wrote it the way she did. I mean, the the fertility of the women of color within that dialogue didn't even matter. But all of a sudden they're just included and there's no
0: discussion around race. Right. So it doesn't just get erased because, yeah. Yeah. No, I know, I I hear what you're saying. On the Jezebel front, Chrissy. I gather you're
4: looking at me.
0: I'm not, I don't mean it like that. Uh, On the Jezebel front, uh, how important do you think sexuality is? Um, How important do you think that sort of purity of sexuality and that binary... Sexuality has become binary, so in the novel, husbands and wives aren't allowed to have sex unless they can procreate. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And so there's no sex except for this horrible ceremony, which is basically the ritual raping of a young woman in order to knock her up. And then there's this sort of brothel that in the television shows called Jezebels, where men go and play out all these kind of kinky fantasies and, you know, take women. And in the book, the commander says to her, well, you can't fight nature and men need variety. And it feels like ultimately there's always an outlet for straight men in any fascist regime. Um, while Celeste is right, uh, there's always a, a quest for some kind of horrendous racial purity, in inverted commerce. There's also also an outlet for men's sexual appetites. What's going on there?
4: Well, they're just completely ignoring women's sexual appetites again um, and that's what happens That's it happens again and again and again um, and it happens through you know scientists throughout the generations have used um, male scientists have used science as a way of saying you know men are more you know wanting sex and women are just wanting a relationship but all of their kind of um, findings are based on their biases that they bring to their experiments. And there are lots of um, people now doing the work that should have been done you know, tens of years ago, um, saying that all of this kind of research is actually just corrupted by the biases of those scientists who were men and who were making excuses for the fact that they have a sex drive, but they just did not want women to have a sex drive. And that's because women with a sex drive are considered dangerous. Or suspicious in some way because her sex drive is actually them getting what they want
0: do you think that's why jeffrey robertson was backing away from me last night at the drinks <laughs> would have been you were a little bit too forward <laughs> lauren do
3: oh, you... I, yeah i would add i think that moira uh, is sort of dulled out in her jezebel role and that's definitely a place in which she's in service to june's narrative and uh, That's especially troubling because the history of the way black and brown women have been oppressed in America, the realities of slavery and rape and slavery and childbearing to have a child taken away from you and of Jezebel's with black and brown women. And I think to have Moira be there and just kind of be in this like emotional coma and kind of in service of June having her awakening is a way that, that they miss an opportunity to dialogue with race. That was one of those fascinating scenes in the brothel
0: where she's going through the corridors and she's seeing them play out this sort of slutty handmade, slutty wife fetish and it's basically what the commanders are secretly imagining. So at one point again there are children in, but so I'll say this in a coded way.
3: Good luck. (laughs) Yeah, off you go. It's a porn version of a ritualistic rape threesome. Thank you. Uh,
0: Yes, you can imagine there's usually no contact between the wife and the handmaid but in this instance (laughs) there is. Um,
4: And they do mention in the book as well that um, in Jezebel's there um, is covert contact between the women in Jezebel's so there's actual sexual contact between them and I think that's something too we, we need to Remember that when we come to this book, um, a lot of people come to it thinking that um, sex work is inherently a terrible thing and that we have sex workers who actually have, you know, a proper profession and actually enjoy their work as well. Um, And we kind of need to take that into consideration too as we're reading it in terms of our our reading of the book too.
0: Um, Quinn, you're also a gender traitor. Yeah. Yeah. How, yes, how important do you think the binary is? Because it feels like there's so much binary in The Handmaid's Tale, that everybody's being marshaled into their place and being told what to do. And if you're dressed like this, and that's one way they do it, they make them wear uniforms. And she says in the final episode, I don't know if it's in the book, she says if they didn't want us to be an army, they shouldn't have put us in uniforms. Mm. Is there something to that that you think? I mean, I, mean, I suppose in Australia now with the, the plebiscite about equal marriage, Do you feel that sort of shoved to the binary and do you feel like that sometimes creates an army?
2: Look, I think it's a missed opportunity particularly. I kind of don't want to let Margaret Atwood off for the book. I was going to say particularly in the series, but she wrote... I mean, this book was written between sort of 1983 and 85. It was published in 86. Is that right? So there were plenty of trans people around in 1986. It's not like we just popped up after Caitlyn Jenner decided (laughs) to transition, which seems to be some people's theory. Like, oh, look, suddenly it was 2015 and Caitlyn Jenner's got earrings on and so trans people exist. So we've been around for much longer than that. And I think there's a real missed opportunity to talk about gender traders in terms of trans people and non-binary people and gender diverse people and what that does. And I was thinking when you were describing it's this homophobic, sexist, society, they've cut out their racism and there's actually no transphobia because there's no trans or gender diverse people to be phobic about. And I think if Ursula Le Guin had written this book, it would be a very different book. I think there would be like lesbian orgies in Jezebels. Yeah. I think there would be this incredible underground resistance that was really well thought out and drawn. And I think that there would be a really strong kind of... Interrogation of gender and what that means, and how we manipulate and use bodies to get done what we want to get done in certain ways. And yeah, thanks. So I think it needed to be different.
0: There's a quote in the book that says, Ignoring isn't the same as ignorance, you have to work at it. How much do you think that we work at ignoring? what's going on in our world, as say as someone from the queer community and even a marginalised part of the queer community, how much do you think we actively ignore, even within feminism, what's going on? Oh, well in this country
2: we ignore every single day because we walk on stolen land that was never ceded. So we ignore every single day. And then next level up, so that's just the base, that's just our horrendous violent history That white people seem to not own and know that it's our story. That's our story. The reason we need to tell our children those stories is because it's their story too. They can cope with that stuff. Children need to know about it. Um, The next level up from that is that we ignore small acts of um, violence and discrimination every single day, um, depending on how safe we feel or what we think we can do. I think there's a lot of ignoring that goes on. And then I I guess in this particular moment now of the postal survey, um, what's been interesting about that is I haven't been able to ignore the homophobia for the first time in a long time. And so um, the illusion of acceptance has vanished. It's become clear that um, I'm not often among friends in certain areas and times, and that um, that's mobilized a huge section of the LGBTIQ community, but also of people who want to support us. How,
0: How long can Australia hold out though? It's the last country in the Western world where equal marriage isn't legal, isn't possible. The last country in the Western world, and I just feel like to have this sort of postal vote about it, I feel like if you're the last to the party, if you turn up to the party at 10 to midnight, you can't then say, should there be a party? (laughs) <laughs> it's like no, you get your it's drink like up you start some, dancing. It's like turning up, you just you get in, you get yourself a drink, you catch up, yeah. you pretend, you pretend you've been there all the time. You don't draw kitchen. attention. <laughs> it's like turning up to pride, like when people are passing out in the <laughs> park and going, guys, just have a thought, should there be pride?
2: It's like, <laughs> no, you've got
0: to get in first if you're going to ask those questions. You can't be, get, it, get in, get a, get a big hat get some sequins, pretend you were there all along would be my advice, Australia. I think there's a
1: question just coming on from what uh, Quinn was just saying, where culture is set at the top, right? The culture of an organisation is set at the top in the decision-making body. And in a place like Gilead, it's set by the government. The government is setting a tone and saying, well, we give permission for this. And I feel like for Australians, the postal survey, I refuse to call it anything else, the statistically not valid survey, is it is permissive. And what it's done, by allowing it to happen, regardless of how you feel about the method, it's given permission for suddenly a whole lot of hate to be voiced. And I think that hate has always been there, but at least people felt like they had to shut
0: up about it. Oh, that's the same as Brexit though. That clearly all this racism was going on, but it's what it has done is given permission for people to shout at people on buses, and to beat people up in the street. That's what it's done. It,
4: it might actually be like getting a whole bunch of handmaids together and giving them stones and telling them, here, throw it at these people and you'll be okay. I think that that's what I'm feeling um, at the moment with the postal survey is that a whole bunch of people who didn't have stones and didn't they think, think to beat them up have been given the stones by the government.
5: Well, they're, they're people who don't have stones. Um, don't have everyday powers. So it's actually about um, the illusion of power so that you get to have a say, but there's nothing in that. We all know that the plebiscite, that's my favourite one that I've heard. Um, You You win, your name's better. (laughs) Is a non-binding sort of say. So there's no power behind it, but yet they've given, like with The Handmaids, where they've given them this brief illusion of power where they can stone a rapist or stone another handmaid who's transgressed and then walk away from it giving their punishment. This is the same sort of dynamic where they're temporarily given a whole bunch of people in this country the illusion of power. But, you know, at the end of the day, that power amounts to absolutely nothing. Nothing that we've sent back is going to force that hand. It's still in the hand of those white dudes who run the ship. Yeah. I'd um,
1: I'd be really interested to know, Lauren, if those kind of everyday acts of racism or sexism have become more apparent in the states over the last 12 months at a sort of a day-to-day living in society level.
3: Yeah, no, they have and I think that it's also then that's really frightening because when we have these extreme examples, then the kind of basic level racist and sexist stuff, those people think they're off the hook and they're sort of like, well, we're not Nazis. And then, you know, it's like, Whoa. Oh, does Nazi yes. become the bar? <laughs> right, the bar. Oh, it's like,
0: well, we're not active white supremacists. We're just white supremacists as much as we benefit from the power structure.
3: Yeah. So yes.
0: we're not, listen, I'm not wearing a white sheet. What more do you want?
3: <laughs> and the, the, but the things that I think, I, I feel like the dial has turned up on even the everyday sexism. I mean, I give a talk at a college, and one of the professors who brought me there, I had spoken to his class earlier that day. And then to make small talk, I said, you know, how do you think it went? And I knew it went really well, because half the class stayed after to talk to me, and they were clearly thrilled. And um, he said, well... Oh. Because like, you're awesome. He li- they liked me so much more than they liked him. It was really <laughs> <laughs> and, but And so I said, um, you know, he was like, well... He did that. He actually did that. And, and there were other professors there. And I was like, I, I actually had to say something. I was like, well, what's your hesitation? And he said, well, I wish the students were more engaged during the question portion. And there was this one guy who kept asking questions. And I said, well, I thought the students were engaged. And he goes, oh, Ezra, I think he wanted to take you home with him. <gasps> Before I was about to give a talk at the college about feminism. <laughs> it was just things like that are, I feel like, happening with increasing frequency. And then the egregious things, where then we have conservative commentators saying, oh, if Harvey Weinstein would have just followed Mike Pence's rule, then women would be safe. And it's like, you feral son of a bitch. (laughs) Like, gird your loins and check yourself into a prison. But like, (laughs) it absolutely has gotten worse. (laughs) Is what I'm trying to say. I love that,
1: that the idea of the bar now being Nazi. In, in, a, in a similar vein, there's this sense of looking back on other pastimes that were bad as if they weren't that bad. Like, I've noticed in the States at the moment, there's a bit of like, oh, George Bush. He <laughs> wasn't that. And the,
0: and to be rough, fair, I love things are cute. To be fair, I'm a feminist, but <laughs> I said the other day, I would rather have sex with George Bush every day for a year than have sex with Trump once. <laughs> <laughs> which I stand by, I would do it cheerfully.
3: I don't want to play this game. I just,
0: I don't know how it came up. I can't track the conversation back, but I know I said it, and I know there'd been drinks. But I totally would. Like, looking back on George Bush, you're right. There is a sort of, almost like a fondness. like he was a sort of bumbling idiot, but he didn't have access to Twitter. And he he wasn't the same kind of throbbing narcissist. Right.
3: His war crimes seem quaint now.
0: I mean, it's awful to say that, that I mean, I feel bad saying that, but, but in terms of the, he, I mean, Trump is, what has happened there? Noren, can you please explain to us why your president is trolling North Korea like it's Rosie O'Donnell? What, what has happened?
3: I mean, he he actually is completely out of control and completely incompetent and has no idea how to govern, no idea how anything works. The small children who can't hear the word fuck would almost certainly be better at Governing the country right Oh, now. sure, <laughs> sure. I've got a ragdoll cat that would have a go. It, it, and he's, he's barely even pretending that he knows. And the thing is, he'll sort of just start doing a word association sometimes <laughs> with himself. Um, he just kind of plays an improv game with his dementia. And that's foreign <laughs> policy right now. <laughs>
0: It's genuinely terrifying. I saw the other day a clip of him saying, I met with the president of the Virgin Islands. That's him. And it's him. He's the president of the Virgin Islands. Now, to be fair, I didn't know that, but he should. He should know where he's the president
3: of. But he doesn't have a basic grasp of... Well, he also said um, that he doesn't... He, who, someone should really look into the press being able to write whatever they want. And I did look into it, and it's called the First Amendment, so...
4: Oh, yeah.
3: He <laughs> saying the other day, he was saying,
0: oh, I just think it's terrible I that the press can write whatever they want. He's describing democracy and saying it's a terrible idea. He's literally reading out the things about democracy and going, this is shit. Who came up with this? <laughs> This is the reason that your president, mate, is because the press can write whatever they want and what they wrote is, isn't he funny, right? Right? And, and all the hair ruffling. For That's anyone, why, I think,
3: who doesn't understand Trump, I would just, it's an old man yelling at the TV in his bathrobe, but he's the president. <laughs> <laughs> but if he goes, and he may have to go, pence depends. I mean, The
0: Handmaid's Tale is his wet dream. He actually has an ideology. Trump's ideology is anything that will keep him in power and anything that will just make people say you're great. He doesn't care about anything. Like, if pride was the most popular thing in America, he'd be pro-LGBT.
3: Yeah, no, Mike Pence is the Beyonce of the anti-choice movement. I mean, they turn out for him. He is a really huge deal in the war on women. (laughs) He's
0: the leading commander. Yeah, he's frightening because he actually would strategically put things in place to hoover the rights away of women because he sees women as so other that he can't have a drink with them without just sitting there going oh my god you've got breasts my penis might move like he's (laughs) he's terrified of women and this fear of women is sort of where it brings us how much do you does anybody here think that there's an increasing fear of women or do you feel a fear of women do you feel othered as either a female person or a transmasculine person
2: every day how how, how often do i feel othered?
0: (laughs) What was that? Oh, okay, okay. Doctors and nurses make transmasculine f- people and transfeminine people feel othered. And
2: so they've got to. For those that might not know, because they haven't had to sit in a psychiatrist's office and um, sit through a series of surveys to explain why you are who you are, that's what happens. So, trans people um, and gender diverse people, non binary people, if we want access to hormones or to surgery, we need to go through a series of very intense psychiatric appointments, fill out numbers of um, surveys that can have hundreds of questions in them about what we like and what we don't like. And from that, we're told whether or not our gender identity is... whether or not we're dysphoric and that we can access treatment. So my thing is, is if you haven't had to do that, it's pretty hard to imagine. It's pretty hard to imagine what that feels like. And no cis person is ever asked to go into a psychiatrist's office antique forms about gender and surveys about gender mm-hmm. to be given the go-ahead to lead their lives as they'd like to lead That's them. an
0: interesting thing, isn't it? Because that's a sort of ordinary that you live with, yeah. that we don't yeah. live with.
2: So the ordinary that I live with, for instance, is one of the great things um, is that you once you transition, if you've got the letter from your psychiatrist, you can get a, a replacement passport for free in your new gender, even if you can't change your birth certificate. But I had to go into the post office to do it. And I was there with this form, with this giant heading that says, you know, gender variant passport applicant. And I go up to the counter and go, I'd like to change my passport, please. And she had to call someone on the phone to talk about it. And she called me she about three times and I let it go. And then eventually I just went, it's he though, you know? And she's like, what? "Mm," And kept calling me she. And every time she said she, I just went he, he. Like, that's the kind of, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's, that's ordinary. It's
0: kind of living that way all the time. The way that the handmaids are sort of othered and we see that and we look at that in horror and we sort of go, oh god, they're sort of constantly being forced into a role or forced into a position given a different name, um, that they're suddenly called by the name of their commander, like of Fred or of Warren or whatever. There's actually a a constant living like that if you're transgender, where you're given the wrong name. You're constantly made to feel like that. And it is always really important for people who are privileged in whatever way that we are privileged here in this room to remember that, that those experiences we're looking at, we're reading about, are actually actively happening to people in the world right now.
4: Can I also just bring up um, women without children? I mean, it is brought up in The Handmaid's Tale. But, you know, when we're having this postal survey at the moment too, we're talking about, oh, but what about the children all the time? As if, um, you know, when you get married, it's for procreation, which is what it is in The Handmaid's Tale. But, you know, that means if we are not letting gay and lesbian people and transgender, bisexual, intersex people get married, then what about people over 60, women over 60, who can no longer have children? We shouldn't let them get married either because, you know, there's no children involved. It's not about procreation. And I, I think that women who choose not to have children through their life are constantly um, fighting against this idea that they're somehow lazy, that they somehow are selfish, that they somehow have made the wrong choice,
0: the or a choice is, is anti- I have no society. children, and I am lazy, selfish, and have made a lot of wrong choices. <laughs> so it's very tricky. <laughs> I mean, that is, that's you're holding up a mirror.
4: I was told by a cab driver, I was in a cab, and the cab driver said to me, oh, so how many children do you have? And I said, none. And he said, oh, you must be very, very selfish then. What? He said that to me. I've had quite a lot of um, cab conversations that have really cut to the core, but that was one, what? Of, those, one of the best of, of them. He a said that. A cab driver said you a were selfish? A cab driver said that to me. And I went, I don't think that that's necessarily true. And he went on to talk about how women that didn't have children Selfish, and that um, you know you should be there, you know, with your children, and that brings something special to you. It makes you a better person. God, if so you'd said like that. that to me, I would
0: have said, "Yes, I am," and I get a cab everywhere because I don't, I won't walk. I just, <laughs> I just I take. In fact, take me for just drive me around the block a few more times. I just, I just, I just, I just, just want to be in the back of your cab, being selfish and lazy <laughs> and making all the wrong decisions.
1: I think that, that, that myth also comes from the inverse, right? And the inverse of it is that women who have children are unselfish people. And to dispel that straight away, I have a child and I would take on any of you. I am the most selfish
0: person on this planet. We'll have a selfish off of the bomb. Done. Yeah, absolutely. I mean Yeah, I don't know that it speaks to your selfishness. I mean, in a very real way, needing to replicate yourself so you can stare into your own eyes (laughs) and avoid your own mortality. I mean, it's not the least narcissistic thing anyone could ever do, is it? Trump's got about 27 children. There only likes two of them. Um, There's a famous quote from The Handmaid's Tale, better never means better for everyone. It always means worse for some. Um, How much do you think we benefit. How much sometimes are we the people that it's better for, so that it's worse for others? And how much more do we need to change the the power structure or contribute to giving up some of our power, or sharing our platform?
3: Extensively. I mean, I think that the best way to put it is, uh, if you live with privilege, equity feels like oppression. So uh, you know, I think that especially in light of what we're seeing, you know, even. The, Men need to step up to the plate for women in a lot of ways, but in terms of the racial interactions, in the states right now, white people need to disavow white supremacy in its most violent forms because we benefit from white supremacy in these smaller, tinier ways. And by staying quiet and not taking a stand, we are quietly allowing the institutions to continue. And I do think we have to have an active role and to be silent is to be complicit.
5: I sort of came at it from a slightly different angle and it, I think that a lot of the dialogues I've had on The Handmaid's style, particularly the series, but also the book, um, the whole discussion of a this could happen scenario was a real point of tension for me because a group of people can enforce religion, can take children, can oppress other people. Um, you were talking about the, the process of naming of Fred and all of that sort of stuff, belonging of that man. It's no surprise that many Aboriginal people in this country have the surnames of um, the cattle station owners that we had. So the the idea that this could happen for me and for a lot of other women of colour around the world, this has been a reality for a very long time. Children have been taken away. What this could happen actually meant to us was that this could happen to white women and privileged white women at that. I mean... um, (laughs) And and so breaking down that quote, um, things are... Things are
0: better. Sorry, can you say it again? I can. <laughs> <laughs> Better never means better for everyone. It always means worse for some.
5: Yes. So to construct that, um, they end up putting in a new strata of power. So the people who are actually better off are the white men at the top with all of the money, and then the white women with all of the money are oppressed under the husbands, and they in turn oppress. Other white women within the book, sorry, I've gone back to the book, I've swapped between the book and the series again, and and so forth. It ends up being this new, oh sorry, and then the Handmaids actually have slightly more power than what all of the Marthas do. So there's this new strata and they're all expected to put each other in place and the, you know, the aunts and that, are exerting what little power they have to oppress people in order to get ahead. And that's the new structure. Meanwhile, everyone of color's taken out of that. So the better for some is actually just the reinforcement of the better for the white capitalist men at the top. And that's it.
0: Do we have any questions from the audience for the panel? There's somebody in the front row
3: Uh, Yeah, just going off what you were saying about things becoming ordinary, uh, with everything, especially with Trump, like,
0: every new thing that happens, it it all blends into one, and we roll our eyes and go, look at this ridiculous
3: thing he's done now, and I think,
0: yeah, acknowledging my own privilege, being a white, cis, straight woman, but um, as someone without much money, without many resources, beyond sort of calling out what I can and trying to be as inclusive as I can in my own life, what can i do to actually feel like there's some sort of um...
3: you can scream and shout and and i think and support women telling stories and share stories of, of everything from from big and small examples of sexism and racism and create help to create a cultural consensus where uh, we were, deborah and i were talking last night of this is not just fighting to get back to where we were i don't think In Australia, you should just be fighting for marriage equality. I don't think we should be fighting for just basic reproductive rights access. I think we need to blow past what the standards were before, and not just defend the status quo, but have new progressive goals for a truer and more equitable democracy that we're fighting for tooth and nail and completely changing the rules we're playing by. Because things are that bad, and instead of just working to defend what once was, I think we need to change the world. So what is the world that you believe in, and how can you use your privilege as a tool and support the women who don't have that privilege and use your voice and speak up and do not be silenced and do not just fall in line What they expect of us, because
0: Mm -hmm. it's a few steps away from putting on the stupid bonnet. Mm -hmm. And the artists control the means of production now as well. Find your voice. The internet is free to use if you've got, you know, broadband, or you can just go into a cafe and use somebody Um, else's Wi-Fi. You're in Australia. We we don't. Uh, Do you not have broadband? (laughs) No. Do you not broadband? (laughs) Well, you know, where am I? What? God, is this Gilead? Like, Broadband's an issue. What do
3: you know about? By the way, breaking news. There's a headline. I just saw Woody Allen sad for Weinstein. <laughs>
0: oh!
3: Save it for hell. Is that seriously?
0: Woody Allen said he's sad for Weinstein? <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm sorry. The show's over. Um, and so is life.
2: Um, Can I just respond to that as well? Yeah, okay. go for it. Um, there's a very amazing uh, trans studies scholar from the States called Susan Stryker. And I got to see her do a keynote late last year where she talked about micro-revolutions. She talked about the need for every single person to step outside of the echo chamber that we're in which is what happens when our computer algorithms only show us what we want to see and to have conversations with people who disagree with us and these are micro-revolutions and if every single one of us is willing to have conversations with people who disagree with us um, clear, calm conversations that use evidence-based arguments and also show our humanity that that's where we can start making real change. So, I, yeah.
0: Anybody got any final
1: thoughts? I think one of the things that really stayed with me the whole way through The Handmaid's Tale was getting, I, I really um, kept looking at Oh, the Commander's Wives. What's their job called again? They're just wives, the, they're the right? Wives. They're, they're just wives, that's their title. I kept looking at the wives and I was like, hold on, do something. You know, they're near the top of that pyramid that Celeste was speaking about and I was sort of sitting there going, hold on, hold on, what are you doing? Like, one of you at least should be breaking ranks here to help out the groups below you and you didn't see that. So Gilead is a world devoid of allies, right? And that's what we're talking about. And I think when you ask about what you can do as an individual and you sort of at risk of starting to sound like a, well, vision ad, you know, you sit there going, I- I'm just me, what, what am I supposed to do? Well, you're supposed to step up where your privilege intersects with someone else who is experiencing an oppression that you're not, even if that privilege is, a, feels like a teeny tiny privilege, even if you're right near the bottom of that pyramid, but not quite at the bottom, there's something that you can do. And I think, you know, I know we've, we've gone on and on about the postal survey here in Australia, and I'm sorry for the international listeners of this podcast, but I think it's dominating a lot of our feelings at the moment, because it feels like there is a group in our society who are under a huge attack and a loud and proud attack. And if you are a queer person right now, you have every right to just sit under the bed and go, nah, I'm not engaging with this world right now. And it is the re- up to the rest of us. It's up to the straight people who are good allies to stand up and be better. And I think that was what was missing in Gilead, was good allies. So be a great ally.
0: <laughs> amplify, amplify, amplify. Um, I need to say a very big thank you to tonight's panel. My guest co-host, Jamila Risby. And Celeste Little. Um, I have been Deborah Francis White. Um, so it only remains for me to say, blessed be the fruit under his eye.
2: Can I have a banana? That was funny.
0: Can you have a banana? Yeah, oh, well,
2: you said blessed be the fruit, and I said that was funny." Can response. I have a banana? Do
0: you know the last time I went into America, I swear when the guy was looking at my passport, he said blessed be the fruit. And I just, I've been binging the show and I just went, May the Lord open. And he went, What? I went, What? And he went what? went, what? I went, What? What? And he said, I said, Do you have any fruit and vegetables? And I was like, Oh. That genuinely happened. It was the weirdest thing. But as I walked away, I swear he went, (Laughter) Okay, uh, thank you so much to the Wheeler Centre for having the Guilty Feminist here. Uh, Thank you so much to everybody who's organised the Festival of Questions. Can we have a big round of applause for the Wheeler Centre and all of the gang? Emily and Amita have been amazing. And everybody, a big round of applause to all of our panellists and our amazing interpreters. That's our show, thank you very much. Again. I still would with Jeffrey Robinson. <laughs> I mean, he, he's he's older than me, obviously, and he's older than he was when he was on telly. But yeah. just for the story and the, I fat it. I find it very sexy. Does anyone else find Jeffrey Robinson very sexy? No. <laughs> just me and that one other lady. with the well, I can take her. Continue. I'm a feminist,
1: but.